Good morning. My name is Nick Lello. I'm the missions pastor here at Waterstone. It's good to be with you this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we are thankful that we can be together, even if it's over video. Uh, we want to worship you well today. We uh, pray that your spirit would be at work in us, especially now as we open your word and try to understand how you work in our world and how we can live in ways that best please you. We pray that you would do that this morning as we explore the scriptures. Amen. We are in a series called Love This Book, and we've been exploring each book of the Bible, trying to understand it in light of the grand story. The grand story is pretty simple. God created this world good, but uh, there was a rebellion, and we are part of that rebellion, and because of the rebellion, sin entered into the world. And God is in the process of redeeming his world and redeeming us. And that storyline is a part of every book of the scriptures. Because sin creeped into this world, one of the things we all experience at times is pain and suffering. It, it may be in different degrees and from different causes, but at the heart of it, the substance of, the, of it is the same. It's something we all wrestle with and struggle with. I like what C.S. Lewis writes. He wrote this in a book called Grief Observed. It's a book he wrote after he lost his wife, Joy Davidson. He says, we were promised sufferings. They were a part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accept it. I'm nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it's different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others. And in reality, not imagination. When suffering becomes real in your life, that's when it becomes a struggle. Today, we're going to look at the book of Job. And Job deals with this issue of suffering. I think a lot of people come to the book and uh, expect Job to give them an answer to the question, why? Job doesn't do that. If that's what you expect, you'll be disappointed. But what Job does do is he explains to us how we can walk through pain and suffering. In fact, Job becomes this great model of how we can respond. This morning, what I'd like us to do is to watch a video put out by the Bible Project that kind of gives us an overview of the book of Job, tells us the story and tells it in a, a great and beautiful way. And then after the video, I want us to dive in and, and see if we can uh, learn something from Job's example on how to respond to suffering. Enjoy the video. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? 
That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. And he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world. Things that we might see every day, but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. 
I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. You know, there's lots to learn from the book of Job. But I think one of the things that is most helpful is to look at Job himself and to see how he models how we can walk through pain and suffering. A lot to say, but I want to focus in on three things we see Job do that I think we need to do when we experience suffering in our lives. The first thing you see and notice, and I think it's interesting, is that Job is brutally honest with God, utterly genuine. Job complains and protests and challenges and wrestles and doubts, wonders about God's wisdom, questions God's goodness, uh, wonders about his power, asserts that his love is not genuine or he's not just, at times says God is reckless and corrupt and unfair. The reality is when we suffer, we experience disappointment and anger and hurt and frustration. We feel crushed and oftentimes bewildered. And I think we have those feelings, but I'm not sure we're always comfortable expressing them to God. I mean, after all, he's God. <laughs> we're supposed to respect him. I couldn't say that kind of thing to God. I couldn't have, tell him I have that kind of feeling. I, 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 I can't challenge him in that way. What's fascinating in the book of Job is Job does that. We always think if we do it, uh, we're going to get hit by lightning bolts. But for Job, the lightning bolts never come. Look, folks, the truth is we feel what we feel. And in one sense, it's uh, really silly to be dishonest with God. You can't lie to him. You can't cover up what you feel. He knows the inner workings of our heart, uh, knows the questions in our mind. And to be honest, I think he can handle it. If we can be honest with him, and then we can share with him our experience, and that gives it some validation makes it meaningful. It allows us not to live in denial. If we can express what we're feeling and what we're thinking and what we're questioning, it, it, it creates a kind of intimacy between us and God where we can be authentic and genuine. And that's the place where trust is built. And as we'll see as we go on, that's what God really wants, is us to trust him. So when you suffer, be honest with God. I think the second thing we learn from Job is that uh, we need to ask the hard questions, both of ourselves and of God, in the midst of our pain and suffering. I've been fascinated as uh, Barb and I have walked through a challenging time this last few years, how many of the questions that I've wrestled with uh, seem to parallel uh, some of the questions you find in the book of Job. To help you see that, I, I want to take a moment, if you'd indulge me, to tell you a little bit about Barb's story and what the last few years have been like. Barb and I have been married for, well, this year, 40 years. Uh, for the last 35 years or so, she has owned her own business, and it's a business where she makes custom body parts, artificial eyes, noses, ears, 
orbitals, fingers, uh, even breasts for mastectomy patients. In, in a sense, uh, her ability to use her hands is what was central to, to her, her identity and it was part of giving her a sense of who she was. A few years back, she had a hip replacement. The hip got infected and uh, they put her on intravenous antibiotics and one of those antibiotics was one called vancomycin, and she had a, a horrible reaction, not just an allergic reaction, but the, we, we think that the antibiotic actually damaged the small fiber nerves in her body. And as a result, she ended up with global neuropathy. She, she, her whole body at times feels electrified, especially her hands. Eventually, the infection subsided, and uh, they did a revision on her hip, uh, which was challenging because the infection had eaten through her pelvis. I took seven months off, and she was finally doing better, and she finally got the ability to walk, although with a major limp. But she could still work, and she could still use her hands. Last summer, we took a trip to Wisconsin to see my daughter. And while we were there, Barb got sick. She ended up in a small community hospital. Uh, somehow she got a staph infection that uh, went from her skin into her bloodstream and it seeded in her spine. The doctors at the community hospital couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. They thought she had pneumonia and they put her on antibiotics to cure that, but she just continued to get worse. Over the course of the next five or six days, she, she began to lose the use of her arms and her hands. And then she could no longer walk. Something else was happening, and they misdiagnosed it. Eventually, they uh, transferred her to a hospital down in Milwaukee called Frederick Hospital. And when she got there, they knew exactly what was going on. She had an infection in her spine that had caused abscesses that were putting pressure on her spinal column. Two o'clock in the morning, a young intern comes to us and tells us that they have to do a laminectomy. They don't relieve the pressure, and eventually will affect her ability to breathe. And by the way, because of the damage done by the abscesses, Barb will be paralyzed from the neck on down. The next day, they did the surgery. It went well. And the surgeon at least gave us a little more hope than the intern had. He said, I'm not sure whether she'll move again. She might. The only way we'll know is time. For the next six weeks, we were at Frederick Hospital, and uh, Barb was on a ventilator and paralyzed from the neck on down. By the time we left Frederick, she had a little movement in one of her hands, and she could wiggle her feet. We were fortunate enough to bring her back to Craig Hospital, in Colorado, which is a hospital that uh, rehabs spinal uh, cord injuries, one of the best in the nation. She was there for a couple weeks, and then the infection came back and got worse, and she ended up in Swedish, and we weren't sure she was going to make it, whether she was going to win or the infection was going to win, but Barb's tough. She won. She ended up back at Craig and was there for two and a half months. And during that time, she got some movement back in her legs and some movement back in her arms, the, the feeling in her hands has not come back 
but she is a little more mobile than she was. She finally got out of Craig. We continued to do rehab, but we discovered that the infection had so compromised the, the bones in her neck that it was collapsing. So she ended up with another surgery in the hospital, and this time she came out with what's called a halo. It holds your head in place. And for the last few months, she's been in the halo just two weeks ago. She got that off. There's a picture, I guess it's on the screen, um, of Barb. She's actually getting her halo adjusted. This is during the COVID virus, so they wouldn't let her into the hospital, so they came out to the parking lot to adjust it. She's out of that now and is still working on rehab. Um, She doesn't have all the movement and she doesn't have all the feeling she would like, but we're hopeful that she'll still make progress. During that whole experience, there were questions that came into my mind that I wrestled with. And I think there's many of the same questions that I think Job wrestled with. First thing I began to wonder was, is this God's discipline? I mean, did I or Barb do something so out of line that we somehow brought this on ourselves? In some ways, that's really the debate going on in the book of Job. Job's friend says, hey, the reason you're suffering is because you've sinned. And Job says, wait a second, I don't think I have. And God agrees with Job. Now, here's the reality. God does discipline those he loves. And oftentimes that's beyond the natural consequence and choices. But for the life of me, I could not think of a reason why that would be true in our lives. I mean, I could picture God disciplining me. I'm much more of a screw-up than Barb is. But I could not in any way imagine him disciplining and punishing her. And I I began to, to realize that if it was God's discipline or his punishment then he, as a good father, and I think he is a good father, would make it really clear what that discipline or punishment was for. And nothing came. I think not only do we have to wrestle with is this God's discipline, but I think the second question I began to to wonder about is is simply this. Is this a a supernatural attack? (laughs) I had people suggest that they thought it was. You know, I suppose there may be an element of truth in that. For Job, uh, that was the case. The Satan is the one who actually God gave permission to bring suffering on Job. But to be honest, why would supernatural forces bother with Barb and I? And why now at this point in our lives? Why go after someone so near the end of their career and the end of their ministry? if it's really about a cosmic struggle. To be honest, (laughs) I'm not arrogant enough to think that Barb or I were all that significant uh, or important to the cosmic fight. I'm not sure it's just a supernatural attack. Maybe there's a piece of that. Then I began to wonder, well, maybe God is trying to teach us something. When I look at Job's story, God does teach Job a lot through his experience of pain and suffering. Teaches him how he operates in the world. But there's no indication that that is why the pain and the suffering were inflicted on Job in the first place. None of what he learned was uh, used as a justification for what he experienced. 
If anything, he was teaching the Satan and the, the divine counsel that Job was one person who served God for nothing. He, he wasn't serving God for the blessing. He wasn't a health and wealth kind of guy. He just served God because God was God. But that was a lesson for them to learn, not a lesson for Job. Job gets taught and we get taught by his example. But that was never the reason behind the suffering. I get a little perturbed when people say, I think that the cause of my suffering is because God is teaching me something. I, uh, I, I wonder what kind of good parent would do that. Parents, good parents, let kids experience the consequences of their choices. But that is different than inflicting suffering on their child so that they learn a lesson. What kind of parent takes their little kid's hand and puts it on the hot stove and say, hey, see, don't touch that. It, it, it's hot. And that's not how a good parent works. We learn from our suffering, but I'm not sure that's the cause of it. Fourth thing I began to wrestle with at times was simply the question of whether or not God had abandoned us or did he just not care. But as I've reflected on that, I've come to the conclusion that in Scripture there is not much of a correlation between suffering and the absence or presence of God. The reality is he is always there right in the midst of it. He may be hidden. He may be silent. He may not seem to act. It may feel like his absence. But he's not absent. In fact, I, I cannot think of one example where someone is forsaken in the midst of their suffering and pain other than Jesus as he became sin for us on the cross. All the rest of the time, God is there, whether seen or unseen. In fact, I've come to the conclusion through this experience, and I've always believed this, but it's being reinforced. God is an interventionist God. At times and moments, God has intervened and answered prayers in amazing ways through this experience, but not always when or how or in the way I would have liked. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out why he answered some prayers and seemed to ignore others. The other way that God has been present for us in the midst of this is through his people. I know Job's friends weren't very helpful to him, um, but ours have been. The church has been amazing. In Wisconsin, we had people who flew out to visit us and then people who let us live in their house weeks on end. And we have been loved on and prayed for in the recipients of incredible generosity. For us, those people, you, have been God's hand and hands and feet in our lives. I think the last question that we need to wrestle with as we're questioning ourselves and God is simply the big one. Why? Why did this happen? And I want you to know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that question. I think ultimately that's the question that Job is asking of God. He wants God to show up and give him an explanation why his life has been devastated and shattered and destroyed. He wants to know. He wants to understand. But I think we need to understand two things when we ask the question why. The first is this, that part of the reason we ask is we think that if we have the answer, it will give us comfort. 
and it will take some of the pain away if we simply can understand. But I'm not sure that's true. If you could come today and explain to me why what has happened to Barb has happened, I'm not sure it would make any of the rest of the day easier or the rest of this coming week less painful. I mean, I'd like to know, but it doesn't, I don't think, provide the comfort we think it might. I'm not sure the issue is comfort as much as the issue is really control. You see, if I have an answer to the question why something bad has happened, then that gives me a sense of safety. If I have an explanation, I can say, well, uh, that makes sense. Life is predictable. Life is controllable. Uh, If I know why things happen, I can keep them from happening to me. I, I know how it works. But if life is random and life is chaotic and we don't understand, then that can be terrifying. I think that's why we want to know why. (laughs) But you know what the reality is? We can ask the question. I'm just not sure very often we will get the answer. Job never does. God just doesn't seem all that interested in the business of explanation. What he is looking for is not our comprehension or our understanding, but rather I think what he's looking for is our trust. So when we deal with pain and suffering in our lives, we need to be honest with God. We need to ask the hard questions of God and ourselves. And finally, and I think this is key, we have to ultimately accept that God is simply God. Accept that God is God. You know, at the end of the book of Job, um, God shows up. And in a way, he calls Job up short. He takes them on this tour of uh, his creation and asks him if he can explain why this happens or that happens, if he has the power to control this or make this or run this part of the world. And of course, the answer to all that is no. And some people think that what is going on here is that God is coming to Job and saying, look, Job, I'm God, you're not, so shut up. I don't think that's what's going on. I do think God is showing up and saying to Job, Job, I'm God, you're not. But I don't think he's saying shut up. I think what he's saying is, trust me, I'm God, you're not. So simply trust my wisdom and my power. Well, that's all fine and good, but how do you do that? Especially when life is hard and painful. I think there are a few things that Job learned along the way through this experience um, that helped him. The first is this. I think he learned that God is not life. What I mean by that is just because God is fair and just, that does not mean that life necessarily has to be fair and just. My experience of life doesn't uh, show me necessarily the nature of who God is. If I think that because God is fair, life must be fair, that's just bad logic. It's not true that if God is just and fair, then life must be just and fair. 
And that's not our experience. It just doesn't work that way. When uh, my kids were growing up, all five of them, one of the things I tried to teach them consistently was just this little phrase, life's not fair. Because that's the reality. Now, some of my kids got that rather easily. Some of my kids didn't get it at all. They have this overwrought sense of justice and fairness, and it's still a struggle. I think that truth, that life is not fair, is a struggle for us. We think it should be, but to be honest, it's not. God is not life. The second thing I think uh, uh, um, Job learns is that life is really simply a stage on which God plays out his story. Uh, that stage that is the place where the story is played out is complex and intricate. And one of the things that I think God teaches Job is that that stage, the life and the world in which we live, is beyond our comprehension and understanding. Not only in how it works, but how God works his story in the midst of it. And I think sometimes that bothers us. We have this notion that we should be able to understand. But I really think that's a silly notion. Why do we think we who are finite should be able to understand the infinite? Should it catch us by surprise that his ways are beyond ours? That there's things about him and how he runs the world that are beyond our comprehension? Right now, uh, my daughter and her family are living with us and I have two grandkids who are staying in the house, Emmeline, who is just turning five, and Madeline, who turns two in two weeks. Me trying to understand how God runs the world is like me trying to teach calculus to Emmeline and Madeline. They're not going to get it. And because they can't get it, it doesn't mean that calculus is not reasonable or that the calculus is not true or that the calculus isn't beautiful and brilliant and is an amazing bit of math. It's just beyond them. And the truth is, uh, the stage on which we live, this world and God's creation and the story that he's telling us, oftentimes is beyond us. Then you add to that this fact that the stage we live on is is fallen. It's, it's beautiful, it's awesome, it's mysterious. The creation is just unfathomable in some ways. Amazing and even dangerous. I mean, look at the behemoth or the Leviathan that God talks about in the book of Job. This world, the stage, is wild and fearsome and savage, but it is also broken. And because it's broken... That brokenness intrudes at times in our lives. This world is infected with sin and it's touched the fabric of creation almost at every level. You know, the other thing about the stage on which we live is this. The stage is filled with beings who are free. Yeah, moral agents, human and supernatural, who are granted freedom. The power of choice. God respects their freedom and gives them and us the dignity to choose. 
And that's good and bad. Good in that that freedom and that choice makes love real and possible and meaningful. But bad in the sense that evil is always the threat. Because we can choose good or we can choose bad. We can choose to love or we can choose to hate. And those choices have consequences for us and others and all the world around us. And God allows it. Our freedom is real, but so are the consequences that come from that. Well, if you put that all together, what does it mean? We live on this stage that is complex, touched by the fall, but filled with free people. Well, I think it means this. I think it means that much of our suffering, our pain, our hurt, our agony, is simply part of life lived in a fallen world among sinful people. Sometimes, maybe most of the time, our suffering and pain is, is just simply part of life. What, what I'm suggesting is that there may not be some ultimate answer to the question why. Our suffering is just life in a broken world infected by sin. In a fallen world, there are bacteria called Staphylococcus aureus and Staphylococcus epidermidis. And sometimes that bacteria breaks through into our blood and gets into our spines and wreaks havoc, causing abscesses and paralysis and sometimes even death. In a fallen world, people make stupid decisions, driving a car or losing control as they drive or driving drunk and they kill innocent people. In a fallen world, not every baby is formed exactly right. Uh, from conception, things go wrong and some babies do not make it and others are born with special needs. In a fallen world, people, those fallen free creatures, murder and maim and abuse and mistreat others are cruel and brutal for no reason other than their own selfishness, their own greed, their own brokenness, their own mean-heartedness. In a fallen world, parents are not perfect and neither are children or families or friends or bosses or any person or group or church. And thus they can all hurt us. In a fallen world, people lose their jobs through no fault of their own, fall on hard times, are stricken with disease, and die way too early. In a fallen world, viruses do crazy things. And it's just life. There is not necessarily a grand reason to all our suffering. Does that mean we don't have hope? Well, not at all. Just because there's no grand reason to my suffering does not mean there is no grand redemption. Just because evil rules the day does not mean it will always rule. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. But God brings reason and redemption to all that happens. I want you to get this. I'm not sure there is a grand reason for all our pain and suffering, but I am absolutely convinced there is a grand redemption. That someday God will make things right. 
The point is God is God and we must simply trust in his wisdom and his power in the midst of our pain and suffering. So with Barb, I'm not convinced that there's a grand why for her infection and paralysis and neuropathy. Quite honestly, I think it's just simply life. But I am convinced there will be a grand redemption. That in the end, God will redeem all of this. That someday, if not in this world, then in the next, she will walk and she will dance. She will run. She will do cartwheels. She will make incredible things with her hands again. And she will be without pain. And I believe that with all my heart. God is God. So all we can do is trust his wisdom and his power. And he will redeem. In Job 19, Job utters these words. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Job says, though he slay me, yet my hope will be in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, to be honest, we, we would love to know the reason for all the pain and suffering in our lives and in the world around us. And it scares us a bit to think that that may just be part of life in a fallen world because then it means things are a bit random and chaotic. But Lord, that should not scare us because we know that in the midst of the randomness and the chaos, you are there. You're present. And there is a grand story that you're telling. And though everything may not have a reason, you still will redeem everything and make it what it should be because you're wise and you're powerful. And the challenge for us is to simply trust you. I pray this morning that by your power and your love and your grace, you would help us to trust you. Amen.